Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Daniel Axt, author of the new book, War by Other Means, the pacifists of the greatest generation who revolutionized resistance. Uh, Dan, welcome to Bookstack. Oh, the pleasure is mine. So congratulations on the book. Uh, And there's an intriguing surprise right there in the title, pacifists as part of the greatest generation. Yeah, I, you know, I think that um, uh, it's it's uh, it's a an overlooked corner of uh, uh, an, an, an aspect of American history that's received a lot of attention. But um, many people, I think, um, may be surprised to learn of uh, of the significance of uh, World War II resistors uh, in in um, important later movements in American history and indeed in the development of the American left post-war. So who were these pacifists and, and how did you make the choices about, about who to include? You know, uh, they were at that time uh, largely religious motiv- religiously motivated, although there was an important sort of socialist and anti-imperialist segment. And um, in, in the religious motivation was particularly important because without it, you could not be designated a conscientious objector by uh, your local draft board. I chose to focus on a particular handful because they uh, had particular significance later, and um, uh, and they played they they help us to understand both what happened then and and what happened subsequently. And uh, and those four are uh, David Dellinger, who became an uncompromising opponent of the Vietnam War, um, <clears throat> Bayard Rustin, who uh, was a complex and extraordinary figure, and uh, and helped uh, see to it that the civil rights movement would succeed on the basis of nonviolence. Uh, and there was Dorothy Day, who founded the Catholic Worker Movement in America to feed uh, the poor and who published a remarkable newspaper and who made, in a sense, made, Catholic, made pacifism Catholic, which it had not so much been. And then um, um, Dwight MacDonald, uh, a cantankerous intellectual who uh, was uh, quite secular but who took up the cause of um, opposition to the war on a kind of um, anti-imperialist and uh, Marxist basis, and he would eventually get over that. But but during the war, published a, uh, and and briefly afterwards, a remarkable little magazine that had a, a, a much greater influence than its size would suggest. Yes, it is interesting because you you start the book with Daniel Dellinger, one of those characters you mentioned there, and it and it presents another paradox that runs throughout the book that. These anti-establishment figures are, of course, fully paid-up members of that establishment. Uh, yes, the, the the book is rich with such paradoxes. I mean, Dellinger came from a reasonably affluent uh, Republican family near Boston. His father was quite friendly with Calvin Coolidge, both when Coolidge was a, a governor of Massachusetts and later when Coolidge was in the White House. Dellinger was brought to see him. Um, um, uh, Dwight MacDonald had a, a even perhaps even more patrician sort of background, and like Dellinger, he went to Yale and had been to prep school. Uh, Dellinger went went to public schools. Bayard Rustin uh, came. You could argue that his family, in their way, were were um, something like black aristocrats uh, in the uh, Quaker penumbra of Philadelphia. They they were not wealthy. They were. Uh, but they were uh, well known, and uh, their home was uh, a place where uh, black civil rights leaders, when they were visiting, would could stay comfortably when hotels were closed to them. Um, and um, 
Dorothy Day was the daughter of a um, a rather rakish um, and conservative uh, sports writer and um, horse racing obsessive. And she herself uh, worked as a journalist and had many paradoxical adventures, had had an abortion as a young woman and later uh, came to oppose abortion, um, converted to Catholicism and, 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 and became devout about her religion. And so there, there are many, uh, uh, many such paradoxes throughout. And, you know, I guess that, I mean, for, as you pointed out there, a couple of them come from a, a particular kind of establishment background and the four of them uh, go on to form another kind of establishment. It's interesting, someone like McDonald, for example, with his ideas about mid-cult, there's a, there's a sense that he always despised the middle class from his position as a member of a, an intellectual and metropolitan elite. And I guess that's the point, that it, it, it was a, a kind of, an, they formed an intellectual establishment. They were an elite. They were a natural elite because they were so extraordinary. They were extraordinarily talented. They were extraordinarily courageous. They were extraordinarily stubborn in the face of you know, popular disapproval and 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 broad support for the war. And I, I emphasize that I don't think they were right to to oppose this war. I'm not a pacifist myself. However, we've learned since then that pacifism is not necessarily a bad reaction when any kind of military activity is in the offing in our country. But one other point I would make uh, uh, about their forming a kind of elite is, uh, you know, part of the reason for the book is to show us where to... How, where today's left comes from and why it looks the way it does. And one of the things we see here is a kind of divorce of the working class by the most radical uh, parts of the left. And I think that schism is very much with us today. Uh, the working class Americans had many good jobs uh, after a brutal depression as a result of the war. The, the factories were booming. And of course, uh, their sons were fighting uh, all over the world. Uh, they supported Roosevelt, they supported the war, and they made extraordinary efforts to win it, for which we should all be grateful. But uh, so, and in and, and another sense in which the folks in my book were uh, an elite is in, in their natural tendencies in some respects. I mean, Dorothy Day loved opera and read Dostoevsky and, and all kinds of, of uh, profound books. She was a a great passionate and serious reader. And as you pointed out, Dwight MacDonald would later become famous as a scourge of kind of middle-brow literature and entertainment, which was really, it's hard to, to match these things. But, but in fact, that stance was consistent with his obsession, uh, with, with, his, with his hatred of, of things which are dehumanizing, and war is dehumanizing. And so in some, at some level, he, he was consistent about that. Day and McDonald were kind of, you might call them conservative anarchists. They were ardent civil libertarians, not a cause necessarily taken up by today's left. And uh, Bayard Rustin was, um, you know, could sing German leader off the top of his head as easily as what were called Negro spirituals at that time. Uh, and so, you know, these were, uh, uh, even Dellinger was an extraordinarily good student, both in high school and at Yale, he, where he studied economics. He was, uh, he was a brilliant guy. And, and so, you know, they, they were, were quite an unusual bunch. Yeah, and it's one of the real pleasures of this uh, very fine book, the kind of paradoxes that you've been talking about during this, uh, during this interview, including actually the way in which ideas wax and wane 
over time in, in terms of, the, of how they speak to particular generations. Because after all, the leaders uh, of this anti-war movement in the Second World War, as you've already pointed out, then become much more successful as part of the anti-war movement uh, during Vietnam. So there, there is this sense of uh, the push and pull of ideas all the time. Absolutely. And there are other such continuities, a small but, but I, I find marvelous example uh, is that the, the gentleman who was the, um, the head of the, uh, the selective service uh, during World War II was the head of the selective service during Vietnam. And ironically, you know, he was descended from, from uh, Mennonites, uh, Lewis, the general, but he was, became a general, General Lewis B. Hershey. Uh, and he was, during Vietnam, uh, the subject of a great deal of criticism. Uh, he uh, was in a difficult position, and his, his views had perhaps hardened in unfortunate ways. But when he was younger, he, I mean, he, he was a rather thoughtful and enlightened uh, a manager of the system, and, and provisions were made for uh, objectors of conscience because nobody wanted a repeat of what had happened in the First World War when, when resistors suffered significant abuse and civil liberties had been trampled and so forth. But, uh, you know, during that time, uh, we have the phrase social justice today. Uh, during that time, there was a magazine published by Father Coughlin, a, a radical uh, and uh, anti-Semitic firebrand in Michigan, and he called his, his publication Social Justice. So, you know, these, the, the, words, the words acquire new meaning, uh, different meanings, and um, the idea of pacifism morphed into nonviolence, an emphasis on nonviolent resistance. So rather than simply refusing to participate in war, uh, the World War II pacifists um, uh, embraced nonviolence as a method of bringing about important social changes. And they recognized that America's moral Achilles heel was, its, was the treatment of black Americans, the persecution of black Americans, their second-class status. And and so they they focused their their efforts in that in that direction and um, and later would play a major role in the civil rights movement. In fact, the, the roots of it can be or or an important foundation for it was established during the war. And it is I mean, it's very striking throughout the book how morality really is the most important thing for them, and reality rather a, a morality above pragmatism. You point out the response of the uh, of the of the United States government is very much one of flexibility. But these resistors, even though many of them uh, could, uh, because they were training for the ministry, they could quite easily have have taken the exemption. Uh, they would actually many of them would actually rather go to prison than fill out the paperwork, that, and because that would have made them complicit with the system. Yeah, there there is extraordinary idealism at times, verging on vanity. Let's not kid ourselves, and yet is a certain admiration. It's hard to read about them and, and learn about them without feeling a certain admiration for how far they will go to, to uphold uh, their own conscience uh, and, and what they believed were the teachings of Christ, because again, many of them were religiously motivated. People now, young people may know of David Dellinger from a movie about the Chicago Seven, who were um, you know, charged with various crimes arising from protests at the Democratic National Convention, I think it was in 1968, uh, what they don't know probably is bef long before the Chicago Seven, Dellinger was a ringleader of a group called the Union Eight because eight Union Theological Seminary students in Manhattan 
uh, became the first uh, significant resistors. They made the front page of the New York Times. They would not, uh, the, the Congress had made a provision for seminarians and clerics and so on, and they refused even to fill out the registration form because it would be complicity in the power of the state to conscript. Uh, and they simply, they simply rejected that. And that leads me to an important point, actually. They, these resistors did not see the government as a source of um, succor for the poor or uh, uh, improvement in the lives of the marginalized, such as black Americans and gays, women, and so forth, Jews. They, they, did, they saw the government, if anything, as a source of militarism and tyranny. Many of them suffered incarceration where they had the experience of a complete loss of rights in that, in that way. Um, and so uh, for Dorothy Day, uh, a reliance on government would have been uh, a way of excusing ourselves, each of us, from our own duties to our fellow Americans, to, to one another. Uh, and so they had a very different view of government that 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 fit nicely when we had, uh, you know, uh, uh, a sudden collapse of credibility in government, maybe not so sudden, during the Vietnam War. And they were always wary of the of the power of the state. And, and that's uh, that's something easy to overlook, given the way things have evolved later on the left. I mean, it does reveal a naivete, doesn't it? Uh, during, during the war, the idea somehow that you could resist fascism and Nazism simply by deploying a strong moral tone. Uh, you say early on in the book that uh, they were impossibly idealistic. Is that idealistic, though, in, in many ways that uh, you could argue that it's a, a kind of moral equivalence in some ways, isn't it? In a way, you see the classic uh, conflict here between a rights-based, sort, a duty-based kind of morality, you know, a deontological kind of morality and, uh, and, a, and, a, and a consequential perspective. And they, they opposed war on both bases at various times, but they, they primarily said that we just simply have an absolute obligation not to kill. Uh, it's against the teachings of Christ. Uh, there was a, a, another group that opposed the war, uh, on, they, they were pacifist on, on the basis that all, all wars basically were class wars, were imperialist wars, and wars over spoils, and people must simply refuse to, to fight them. But I do think they were unrealistic, and not all of my pacifists remained pacifists. Dwight MacDonald later, I believe he supported the defense of Korea, but, and, and he, he certainly supported the Berlin airlift. Uh, and um, he, he admitted later that he had, he had been wrong during World War II. Max Campbellman, one of the better known of the small group of Jewish pacifists during the war, later became a Marine Corps reservist, although he did achieve his greatest renown in uh, negotiating uh, arms controls with uh, the Russians in the Reagan administration. George Orwell, uh, you know, uh, gave a very sharp answer to pacifists during World War II as the bombs were falling on Britain. Um, essentially saying that they were helping the enemy, they were free riders, they, they're, they're, the food on their table and the security that they enjoyed was all based on the bravery of British sailors in, in uh, securing uh, uh, the island. Uh, and, um, and, I, and I agree with that, honestly. Uh, I, I do agree with that. I'm not a, I've said I'm not a pacifist, but I do think on a practical level, if, if we all responded with a kind of knee-jerk opposition to various military adventures that we've been involved in, usually without 
great uh, success, um, uh, we might be better off. And the book deals briefly with the group that we call and that call themselves to a great extent isolationists. And they really are closer to what many modern Americans um, believe in the sense that they said we should stay out of war at all costs and we should remain strong militarily in order to do so. And we're also safe behind our oceans. Now, wasn't necessarily right either, particularly in that in that conflict. But the um, the kind of discrediting of more conservative anti-war voices, I think, has haunted us ever since because those voices might have been very useful in uh, in later years. And it's one of the it's one of the real paradoxes again to use the word that has kind of become the theme of the uh, of this conversation and and certainly is of the book that you know on on the one hand you make it clear that these second world war pacifists they're right about a lot of things the the horrible treatment of blacks at home the internment of japanese americans uh, the quite questions around the bombing of civilians in enemy cities nuclear weapons and so on uh, and yet, uh, on the other hand, although we can see uh, how they could argue that a segregated society has no room to take the moral high ground, on the other hand, what did they think of the systemic, lethal segregation that was going on in Germany? We had Brendan Sims on the, uh, the show last year, uh, who showed exactly the plans that Hitler had for the United States, for just those Jewish Americans and for black Americans, uh, if, if Germany had won the war. So. You know, again, that paradox drives all the way through the book. Yes, it does. Ab absolutely. And uh, there are a couple of things I, I would address with respect to that, if I can keep them straight in my head. Uh, but one, one important one was the, the, I think, valuable role that pacifists took on during the war in calling us to conscience and in urging us to live up to the values that we were fighting for or we claim to be fighting for. Uh, so they were early and loud ringers of the alarm about Hitler's treatment of the Jews, and later also uh, when when the mainstream press in this country more or less suppressed the news of what we now call the Holocaust, uh, paper, uh, publications on the left and, and pacifist publications um, um, brewed this loudly and, and, and protested as best they could. They called on America to admit more Jewish refugees. They condemned the bombing of civilians uh, and, of course, uh, culminating in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, at which they were aghast. And they protested, as few Americans did, the internment of the West Coast Japanese Americans in far-flung concentration camps, really, which is an ugly word, but it's the right word in this case, solely on the basis of their ethnic background. Uh, there was no evidence or suggestion that they were a threat or disloyal in any way. Um, you, you know, there's a line uh, I use as an epigraph from uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, who uh, I think describes their, their usefulness uh, quite uh, powerfully. He says, we who allow ourselves to become engaged in war need this testimony of the absolutist against us, lest we forget the warfare, lest we accept the warfare of the world as normative, lest we become callous to the horror of war and lest we forget the ambiguity of our own actions and motives and the risk we run of achieving no permanent good from this momentary anarchy in which we are involved. He's always great neighbor, isn't he? Fantastic.
I mean, it it is interesting that I mean that sense of um, religion running through these deba debates is actually something very powerful uh, in the book, and you know, I I suppose it does tie into that feature of American power, which is just emerging onto the world stage as the world's number one power at precisely this moment. That sense of the moral imperative is right there at the heart of these debates in the national and international discourse. Yes, and not only that, you can observe one of the many things you can observe about the evolution of the American left is during the war, uh, young men who who started out um, uh, religiously oriented were mixed together with war opponents uh, and and others in prisons and in a network of um, dusty uh, civilian public service work camps where uh, resistors could go if they preferred not to perform. Um, uh, you know, non-combat duty in the armed forces. And um, at the same time that they were all mixed together and learning from one another and debating and being exposed to people, maybe they had never met socialists, maybe they had, had met very few Jews in their lives. Uh, at the same time, America's churches were very supportive of the war. Clerics who, who in the interwar period had proclaimed their devout pacifism after Pearl Harbor were, were on board with the fight. and. Um, and so this, uh, th this played a role, I think, in alienating uh, uh, the pacifist resistors from the religious establishment and, and, helping, and it helped to propel their secularization. And we see today, of course, the, the, the left is almost in, entirely, is, is overwhelmingly secular. And to the extent, in many of the liberal Protestant denominations, if anything, have been subsumed by the political dimension, we could call it, but really the, the imperative to, to help the downtrodden to do good works that came from the social gospel movement of um, the earlier part of the, uh, of the 20th century. And so we see the, uh, the way in which pacifism was interwoven with um, the evolution of, of mainstream religion, religious denominations, the mainline Protestant denominations, which were so important during the war. And after, uh, as well as the uh, the secularization of of the left, and one of the I mean one of the intriguing things that you do is that uh, you you show that these characters are to uh, use the phrase that 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 you have in in the book that they they are all American that you know these figures who were very often dismissed as being anti-Americans um, they they have all American political DNA you say. Uh, their stress on personal conscience to cite a single strand goes all the way back to the Puritans. And absolutely, you you find you find that they are they are uh, they, they they their focus on conscience, their pig-headedness, uh, but also um, their uh, resistance to authority and their um, their uh, obsessive opposition to hierarchy. Dellinger was a born leader. Everywhere he went, he was put in charge of things. He was made, you know, captain of, of the freshman at, at, at runners at Yale and so forth. And, uh, you know, he just stood out in this way. He was a leader everywhere. And yet he despised hierarchy. He insisted that he wasn't leading. And, uh, and this kind of uh, obsessive desire for uh, consensus, this obsessive need to run things on the basis of consensus and, and so on has been a kind of a plague. I mean, 
the, uh, the, the left really, you know, they never developed, even through the, the anti-war movement of the 60s, the civil rights movement, you know, there wasn't really a coherent or enduring political institution or set of institutions that arose from all of this. Uh, and you can sort of see why, because they, the, you know, everybody was just so um, consensus oriented. There are scenes in my book where in prison, some of these guys would be talking about what should be their next protest move because they were constantly striking to try to desegregate the prisons or get uncensored mail or just simply, you know, drive the prison authorities mad, which they largely succeeded in doing. And there would be just endless debates over what, what is the nature of coercion and what does, what does our focus on nonviolence permit? And is this fair to so-and-so and who can participate and who would participate? And it's, it, it, it was, it was maddening even to the resistors themselves at times. But, you know, that was, that was, that was the nature of the beast and, uh, and to some extent has remained so. Yeah, I mean, we, we saw and talked earlier how these anti-war ideas wax and wane over time, that they were popular around the time of the Vietnam War, they, they're popular during the war in Iraq. I wonder, I mean, bringing things up to date, we've, we've just seen on the international stage, a return to an, an older world order in some ways, naked aggression by a great power to invade a smaller neighbour, uh, Russia, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, it feels more 1940s than 1960s. Um, uh, where do you think they fit in today's environment, your figures? Uh, great question. You know, um, it's, of course, obviously been said many times that generals are always fighting the last war. And uh, for, the, for the half century after World War II, American policy was driven by the sense of not having, you know, repeat of Munich and not, not, not appeasing and, 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 and all of that. One of the things I try to show in the book early on is the difficulty of figuring out when to fight, you know, and, and, and what to fight for and who to fight. I mean, before Pearl Harbor, you know, I mean, in, 19, in the late 30s, I mean, the, 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 the Nazis invaded Poland, but so did the Russians. And they also, the Soviet Union, they invaded the Baltic countries and so on. And, uh, and who exactly was, was the enemy here? So what, but, but now, after decades of, of trying to fit uh, inappropriate or, or um, uh, uh, conflict, civil wars, wars of national liberation into the World War II template, uh, something comes along, the invasion, <laughs> the invasion of Ukraine by, by Russia that, that does kind of fit the template. And we find ourselves, just as we uh, kept Britain afloat uh, with supplies, we, we find ourselves once again motivated to keep Ukraine afloat with arms and so forth. Uh, and um, I guess it is worth worrying about whether the parallels would continue. I mean, uh, people who opposed aid to Britain said we would be dragged into that war by these activities. And before Pearl Harbor, as you probably know, we fought a kind of undeclared, we had a shooting war in the Atlantic Ocean with Hitler's Navy because somebody had to get these these convoys to Britain and, and, uh, and uh, uh, the Navy, it was a job, obviously, for the United States Navy. So uh, protecting means protecting and, uh, and shooting. And so um, one does worry where, where this will lead. But, um, you know, back then, people recognized, uh, even people who 
who ardently wanted to stay out of the war, many of them recognized that after the fall of France in particular, it was just extremely important to keep Britain afloat. And, um, uh, you know, I, as I said before, I am not a pacifist and, um, uh, Ukraine, Ukraine, uh, has not asked us to fight. Uh, it is, it is, uh, it is simply asked for the weapons to do so. And so, and so here we are, but yes, as you know, very well, history has a way of, uh, recalling these echoes. And, and this is, this is the, maybe the first time in a long time when, when the echo is, um, is the right one, uh, is, is, is the one that uh, really does recall uh, that earlier conflict. And on, and on social issues too, you d d talked about Puritanism before. Some people have described uh, many of the debates on issues of race and gender and class uh, and so on uh, today as having a, a kind of a new Puritanism about them. Do you think that that's a, a good analogy? And, and again, what do we learn from your characters in thinking about these kind of debates and moving society uh, forward? Uh, it, you know, it's a, it's a challenge because the, the, uh, I think that we would find today if they could be re you know, brought back to life that the, some of the leading figures in my book would have very traditional views. We would find their views out of sync with our, with our, with our times. Um, and by the same token, you know, Baird Rustin was gay. Uh, it's not by chance that his collected writings are called Time on Two Crosses because he was black and gay. And um, Dorothy Day um, uh, in, in, the, in the 60s and 70s it was not a fan of the sexual revolution. She was not thrilled by uh, the uh, activities of some of her young uh, acolytes at their, their farm in Tivoli, New York, or even at the hospitality uh, house, houses in, in Manhattan. Uh, and yet she herself had, had, had many lovers. She had, she had had an abortion, uh, as a young woman. Uh, so, so, you know, there, there are difficult problems. David Dellinger, uh, does, you know, was bisexual and, uh, his family, uh, his marriage persisted with many, many difficulties over, over many years. It was a traditional marriage in, in, in which Betty uh, largely looked after the children and he often was away from home. Uh, I think, though, that um, something that they would not be comfortable with is the evolution of a kind of dogma. Uh, Dellinger uh, and Rustin and um, uh, Dellinger and MacDonald in particular, uh, one of the things they hated about communism, which they flirted with at various times, MacDonald perhaps more than flirted, was just that the sheer the sheer awfulness of the clanking rhetoric, the mechanical nature of it, the 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 uh, the suppression of of individual uh, uh, viewpoints, the idea that you were going to just submerge all of your uh, critical faculties to uh, the dictates of uh, some uh, party uh, congress or apparatchik or foreign power, even. Uh, they would, they were, they hated them, and the the uh, the sense in which a dogma arises in and and in which uh, dissent is not uh, permitted, and which uh, any deviation on a campus or in some other uh, cultural setting is um, is uh, brings a swift and uh, pitiless retribution. 
uh, would, I think, have, um, have appalled all of them. Uh, and I, I certainly hope so. So the book is War by Other Means, The Pacifists of the Greatest Generation Who Revolutionized Resistance. It's written by my guest, Daniel Axt, and published by Melville House. Uh, but for now, Dan, congratulations again. Fantastic book. And thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Oh, Richard, thanks so much for having me. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.